Hello, boys and girls. This is Timothy Leary, and I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, the only hope here is WCBN-FM. If you're ever stuck in Ann Arbor, stick around with WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. <laughs> That's beautiful. Right on. There is a saying that all love is blind. Still we're often told, seek and ye shall find. So I'm going to seek a certain man that I had in mind. There's somebody that I'm Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writer Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet, critic, teacher, and shaman drum reading series host extraordinaire Ray McDaniel. Um, winner of the National Poetry Series for his first book, Murder of Violet. He has a forthcoming book. Is it next year? Should be uh, winter 2007. Winter 2007, called Saltwater Empire, and that's what we'll be talking about for the most part today. Welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, as is our usual bent, I'd love to jump right into some poetry, and then we'll jump right into some chatting about it. Um, if you'll read from this new manuscript, Saltwater Empire, um, I believe Race Records, Rhythm and Blues is on on the on deck. <laughs> there it is. Race Records, Rhythm and Blues. Hello, my name is Mississippi. My name is Slim Blind. Uncle, I'm Junior. Red, Ivory. T-Bone, my name is Fiddling. Sunny Boy. Joe, I know 2,000 tunes. Thank you. And I'm going to have you read one more, and then we're going to go from there. Um, This next one, Science Horror of the Black Seminoles. This one, uh, Science Horror of the Black Seminoles, has an epigraph from the Ur zombie movie, Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) Uh, is one of two of the all-time great horror movie lines, uh, the first of which being, uh, he's dead, he's all messed up. And the second one being this, kill the brain and you kill the ghoul. Send in the broken, come on, boys. My crackers to blame and I'll blame them. Dumb cluck hunters point at what's past and past animation and say nothing but, ah, he's dead, he's all messed up. Go into grass, into marshlight matinee, go after that and for what all? Bog gods, rigor, regiments, uncanny shamble lads are not our dead men meant to be unfeeling. But when we regard our unassimilated armies, who fears whom? What unfeelingness equals, ah, annihilation? To fear what sure chill, surely unreal, Some's come hanging and some's come horror. Up the hill, dead man, as strong as you are, shambles now. What unfeelingness equals, ah, wait, ain't men, they aren't even men anymore. Impend a parade, some come slaves, some come boy with flag, rag, ribbon, some bamboo flute or banjo string, boxy. 
Gorilla Zombie made perfect pulp, except for the truth of the thing that they fought to a standstill every man-jack set against them. Dig that up out your backyard, boy. And what do you do, Balance MD, why I eat arrowheads and shit out scaredy cats? Murderer's melody. Who's rooting for whom? Must have caused a proper panic that dead men prosper while soldiers sink in canal, crevasse, seated with razor grass. Sinkhole caves. Dead men subterranean. No breath to betray bubbles swaying down there like reeds. Saucers of milk mooned up in their eyes. Oh, damnation, damnation. Undead army from Sea Island Breaker to Gulf Breaker, Clam Digger and Cutlass. Fought from no place to no place. Forgotten. Pine cabin in the woods and white girl. I'll tell you they went in after them and never came out again. Went down after and never came back. Thank you very much. So I've heard you describe your first book, Murder of Violet, as um, a novel with all of those extra words. And um, the poems sort of work by accretion. Um, they and, and the book is meant to be read as a book as opposed to individually excerpted um, poems. I've heard you describe this manuscript as a bunch of Dixie fried poems. And I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about what you mean specifically about the Dixie fried um, and maybe bounce that off of, off the concept of the novel without all the words, extra words, that would be. Well, it's, uh, it's your backyard. You know what it's like. Uh, growing, growing up in the South, I was struck particularly by how odd it was to... Uh, to come up in a place that was so commonly and consistently mediated or represented uh, and yet never remotely accurately, which is not in the defense of uh, the properties of the South as it's conventionally understood. It's just a way of uh, both existing, I don't know how to put this, existing under a certain kind of spotlight and also uh, completely outside of it all at the same time. Uh, so now, in, to, to clarify, you're talking about the spotlight. You're putting it under it and being outside, or the South is always... Just growing up in that environment. Okay. Yeah, you can't, you can't get away uh, from the fact that you're growing up, you know, that, that uh, you reside in a place that other people have an inevitable imagination of. There's never a blank thought. You know, the set of evocations is as long as the history of the country, uh, longer. And to know that you were associated with that and yet never have it actually correspond to the experience itself uh, struck me as weirdly both the most common and least articulated element of growing up there, that, uh, that everyone knew it, but no one was really able to say it that the conversations always got flattened in terms of, uh, well, uh, Southern patronization or Southern defense, when really the whole relationship was both more sinister and more sublime than either of those mechanisms would allow. Why then, if, so in this manuscript, you're, you're working to sort of flesh out what it is to be Southern, what that experience is, and what that sort of external um, perception is. Why then? It's a very catchy word to say these are Dixie fried poems, um, because obviously I've remembered it now for a year since I first heard you say it at a reading right. in last fall. Um, but 
it also strikes me as a way to kind of essentialize and continue that. Let's talk hillbillies. Let's talk sure. Dixie. Let's talk um, backwards. Let's talk any number of things that people do about the South. Um, is there some self-denigration involved in that, or is there some irony, or, or what's? Will you unpack your default to or choice of Dixie Fried? I don't think it's uh, it's as facile as self-denigration or irony in the sense that there's not really a judgment attached to what uh, what I what I speak of broadly as uh, the Dixie Fried. It's simply an acknowledgement that all of the tropes and conventions and stereotypes and caricatures and cartoons are as fundamental to the experience as all the things of which those seem to be false or exaggerated representations. Mm -hmm. You can't can't get away from it. Uh, You can't get away from the experience of actually having an opinion about something like magnolia trees. Uh, you know, you you can't escape that experience, and you also can't escape all of the tropes and conventions that are associated with it. It exists simultaneously, and somewhere within that combination, uh, more or less authentic experience must occur. But I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to acknowledge that process of cartoon making, I guess, uh, without indicting it as false. Uh, or embracing it as absolutely legitimate. And can can you point to some places in those two poems that you just read that might illustrate that effort, or are those not? Well, in uh, in the first, uh, let me take a look here. Uh, in the first of those, in uh, race records. Uh, for blues mu- musicians, uh, particularly, the idea that. After a while, uh, it became a convention for recording purposes that you have a name that is not your name. Uh, and Blind Willie, whatever, exactly. That, yeah. And that whatever function that might have originally served within uh, a kind of non-imagined, non-recorded community uh, quickly became indistinguishable uh, from the representation of the community to a wider world even if that wider world was just the white folks in the town uh, down the street. And that's uh, and that's that's the kind of thing I'm particularly fascinated by, that it has, again, that, you know, that so-called uh, authentic original function, but then almost immediately becomes uh, a function of representation as well. <laughs> I can't pretend that it doesn't happen, because that would be just as constrictive and narrowing uh, a representation as the more uh, as the more shallow ones, but I also can't embrace it entirely either, um, which is the which is the reason why even in science horror so much of that, which depends on a set of fairly obscured historical facts, but how so much of that depends on uh, Night of the Living Dead, um, on a genre. On, uh, on things people imagine they have some familiarity with, but actually, uh, in terms of true complexity, really don't. Interesting. Well, that, that leads me actually to something else you've said. I've heard you say about um, aesthetics and, hi- and, and sort of no hierarchy in aesthetics. For, 
For you, um, and I may misrepresent what you said because this is now dark ages of my memory, um, but you, you've said that, that comic books and high art and um, the Night of the Living Dead and stories um, around the campfire, that all of those things can be on equal footing. Um, there's no sort of um, aesthetic hierarchy that you would default to and say this is high or low and this is more interesting or less interesting for any sort of externally determined reasons. Um, therefore, you're drawing from a palette that um, that is is diverse and your choices are not obvious to me because it's they're, hmm. they're not necessarily linked to... Um, societal conventions, but they're coming from societal conventions. So I'm wondering what you think about that or are thinking about that currently. I would love to tell you that it's actually a thoroughly considered aesthetic argument as to how one should manage information, but it is in fact the express byproduct of growing up by standards, uh, I don't know, by growing up in a way that, uh, that would uh, fairly be characterized as culturally impoverished. Right, being unable to distinguish uh, because of how I grew up between what's meant to be high, medium, low, uh, what's meant to be trashy, what's meant to be exalted. For uh, those formative, imaginative years, I was incapable of distinguishing between them. They all struck me as equally unlikely and equally realistic. So the idea that you would have to choose that uh, that the distinction would necessitate a choice that you couldn't help but make didn't really impact my consumption of that material at all. It was undifferentiated, ambient. Uh, and while I can kind of reverse engineer some kind of argument for the aesthetic virtue of that, it's really uh, a consequence in terms of creative practice that I can't shake off or avoid. I can recognize I can I can now apply those standards, but I can't really feel them. I can't intuit them. Are you considering them when you're thinking about this writing from sort of the inside outside and 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 walking um, or bridging those places between authentic experience and um, the cartoons? I suppose I suppose I must be thinking about it in some way, but I'm not thinking about it very lucidly or explicitly. You know, the uh, the work itself, I guess, I'm hoping will uh, create some approximate some some approximation of that inability to distinguish, uh, rather than uh, rather than clarify the things that uh, I didn't realize were actually confusing until I was older and uh, and out of range of their immediate impact. Lovely. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My guest today is poet Ray McDaniel. We're talking about his forthcoming manuscript, Saltwater Empire. This is Ashley David. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hey, Joe. I said, where you going with that gun in your hand? Oh. 
We're back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Ray McDaniel. We're talking about Saltwater Empire's forthcoming book of poems. And um, we've been talking a little bit about aesthetics and how you sort of approach them and um, how that sort of works into your thinking about writing your poems. And what's we, what's interesting to me um sort of aside from the aesthetics of the poems in this forthcoming book is um, the thematics of the poems and um, the ways in which they, it's situ- the, the manuscript is situated in the Gulf States area, um, which is the area that was hit um, by Katrina, the Hurricane Katrina and um, other recent storms and is, is has been reconfigured since you wrote the manuscript. Let's put it that way. That's the quickest way I can reduce that experience. Um, and when the hurricane first hit, I, I was like, wow, what are you thinking about these poems now? So I'm going to ask you, wow, what are you thinking about these poems now? And um, your answer then said, said, very strange to predict the future a little bit. And, you know, and that was sort of one of the things that you threw out as you were wandering off down the halls to your next class. So, wow, what do you... What do you think about situating this manuscript there and talking about some of the things you talk about in the manuscript and then having the last few months transpire it's awful i don't i don't want to be seen or i don't want to imagine that uh that i'm making hay out of uh out of other people's ruin even though when i say uh, other people that's kind of a forced response you know i still identify myself as one of those people even though, if I'm being rigorously honest, I have to admit that simply by virtue of no longer living there, I can't really claim that in the way that I used to be able to. But uh, at the at the same time, uh, one of the one of the most frustrating things about Katrina and the aftermath uh, is not, of course, just for the the disaster itself, but to kind of see uh, how people depend so heavily on the idea of the uh, abbreviated colorful disaster and a way in which that obscures the long, slow, tedious disaster uh, by which the entire region has been afflicted for, you know, God knows long before I came along. Uh, So in that sense, a literal prediction of the future, very simple things like uh, it's uh, it's impossible, say, for instance, to live in New Orleans without having gone through in your mind and as kind of a topic of consistent community discussion how and when the city would be destroyed. Uh, that kind of, uh, of literal prediction doesn't unnerve me so much as uh, the consequence of... Uh, I'm not sure quite how to capture this. The consequence of some of the more... I don't know, slower, uh, more serpentine predictions, ones that have to do with, uh, with questions of, uh, of the deep emotion that the region engenders in the rest of the country. Uh, that Can you fear. characterize that emotion? Uh, I, for me, it's a, it's a deep-seated conviction uh, about the, uh, the apathy and disinterest of, uh, of the rest of the country when it comes to the cost and consequences of those places. That sense that, uh, that manifest disregard is just under the surface. Uh, that, uh, that you have a kind of conventional ill-attention that barely disguises uh, 
uh, a neglect that is really tantamount to animosity. Uh, and that, that kind animosity of Animosity on the part of Southerners or on the animosity on the part of folks thinking about the South? Uh, animosity on the part of people imagining the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that sense that you, you know sooner or later something will go catastrophically wrong. And when it does, no one will come to save you. Because either no one cares or, uh, it, uh, or people believe that it's deserved or in some ways morally inevitable. And uh, the, the kind of deep pragmatic fatalism that comes with that, which some people, I think, misidentify as uh, just a kind of flat or shallow cynicism, uh, is really emotionally compelling to me. But it's, uh, it's a much harder thing to live than it is to think about. You, know, you, uh, you detect these tendencies or these convictions, and that doesn't mean that you ever want to see them made real especially at such spectacular cost to so many people who have so little to begin with. So then are you speaking mostly about um, impoverished Southerners or are you speaking generally about the South? When, like, For whom would these issues um, be preoccupations, conscious, or like this... Who are your people? The South is a really, it's a really big thing. Uh, and if you're totally unfamiliar with it, you can imagine that I'm talking about you know Mississippi or Louisiana or the Panhandle as readily as I'm talking about Arkansas, and clearly I'm not. And across class and race, or like, or would you just, or do you think people just gloss Mississippi and say, oh, it's all Mississippi, or it's all? Uh, it depends on whether or not you're making the estimation from within the South or from outside it. Now, from outside of it, it's probably just one big mess. But from the inside, those uh, those divisions are uh, both distinct and really confusing. And so, uh, I guess if if I have to I, I have to identify my people uh, in that regard, or just think, with respect um, to the manuscript, you can go any way you like with it. <laughs> uh, I think of the of the coastal populations um, on both sides. You know, the uh, the coastal populations of North Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas and the coastal populations of uh, the so-called Redneck Riviera, mm-hmm. uh, Florabama, the Florida Panhandle, Biloxi, Mississippi, Louisiana. All that area, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, I guess, those are the people uh, for whom I have the greatest kind of familial and historical affinity. And that's what shows up mostly in in um, this manuscript, too, is that the, those areas, we're not, yeah. we're not talking Arkansas, we're not talking Texas. I wonder if you'd well, read Texas another... Well, Texas is its own country. It's its own, <laughs> that's a lone star state. Ask a Texas. <laughs> um, don't mess with Texas. I wonder if you'd read another poem, poem for us, and then we'll move, move on from there. Um, how about in the, na- in the Game of Hearts One May Win by Shooting the Moon? Sure. Murmur through the slough through humid and hurricane, waste bisected with Atlantic defections, our hair bleached to rust, to beer near enough to drunken, boiled in beds, poisoned with sun, suffused with the sense in our flesh that some broad-watered god had fondled our bones, kneaded our wicks to wax. For days shaved ice in cups, in games of hearts the cards marshal blue, Frayed to pages, to unfolded edges, or else lust for heart's markings. Blinds billow, embellish the jealousy. White waves adorn the shore. Thank you. 
So Saltwater Empire is about home in a way that Murder of Violet was not about home. <laughs> I hope that that's the case. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if that uh, if that first one represents any kind of uh, literal home, I'm in even more trouble than I imagined I was. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, that's uh, the first one. That first book is uh, it's a really difficult mental space to occupy. For uh, especially for the duration of composition, mm-hmm. it has a kind of moral or inquisitive home, um, but it's uh, it's not literally uh, autobiographical in any way. It was, in fact, expressly designed to not reflect any of my actual experience. And then this is, in some ways, the complete reverse. How then were those exercises different for you um, to? go someplace so deeply personal as home um and for as a fellow southerner um a di- and displaced southerner you know n- neither of us lives in the south anymore um there's something very strange and peculiar about that because the dirt is very important at least in my experience um that dirt is me and I'm not there um and uh, I can't escape it even so and don't really want to actually so I, I imagine that that um, the intellectual exercise of going through this moral landscape in Murder of Violet versus going through this emotional landscape of home um, were very different creative exercises for you. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that. Well, it's it's different in the sense that uh, that with the new stuff, with salt water, it's I don't know. Leaving is a form of enforced self-consciousness. You abandon something and you become aware of it in a way that you would not have been had you remained. And uh, abdication, as far as that goes, becomes permanent. Once you become self-conscious of the place, the place ceases to exist in uh, in the way it existed that compelled you to begin with. Uh, And... I had to kind of work through that, admit to myself that that was, in fact, the case before I could reimagine it. I couldn't reimagine it if I thought it was remotely possible that I could ever occupy it again. And that's uh, and that's different because it has, I suppose, uh, an elegiac quality that wasn't part of the process for murder at all. With murder, even though a lot of it is kind of after the fact of uh, of the poems themselves, I was committed to remaining in that moral dilemma. You know, the experience of that moral dilemma is the home of the book. You can't get away from it. There is no possible exit. Uh, and uh, in this case, it's somewhat the reverse. There's no more entrance. Which is particularly interesting to me at this moment because for many of the people post-Katrina, there is no real entrance back to the same home anyway. Um, I believe the population of Baton Rouge sort of doubled overnight uh, at one point. Um, So I wonder if you are thinking now, in thinking about your choice, although I'm not sure you think of it as a choice, so that's that's a question you might want to address, but your choice to expatriate, shall we say, um, from the South and then re-enter the South in this way um, through the manuscript Saltwater Empire um, and the kinds of things that it addresses that are now more poignant given the recent hurricane, um, do you think about 
finding new ways in and perhaps changing some of the manuscript or changing some of the poems prior to the book's release. Is is there any of well, that the, going on? The biggest change is that I wanted to get back in there and tinker with things that prior to Katrina had would have read as metaphorical and then turned out to be literal. Mm-hmm. When you're when you're writing about the consequence of uh, of an entire city being effectively drowned, you know, of uh, of the relationship between land and water being utterly reconfigured, so that uh, their positions are inverted or one becomes the other. To write about that uh, at the level of symbol or affect becomes a lot more morally complicated for me when uh, the symbolic effort actually occurs in the real world. So I wanted to go back and make sure that uh, that, that was, I guess for lack of a better word, actualized, made factual, um, made more uh, more concrete. But I also, in, in terms of, I guess, that, uh, that elegiac claim... I also don't want to make the mistake of imagining that just because I no longer have access to an experience that the place doesn't really exist, right? That uh, That's a common, I'm getting old error. You know, there are plenty of people uh, who still obtain there, who have families there, are children there right now. Well, and you have who, family there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, who are working, uh, who are working through on a daily basis, very many of the issues that I choose to write about. So it's not some bottled region. You know, it's not uh, it's not isolated, like something you can put up on a mental shelf. And you haven't done that either in your sort of expatriation process. You haven't bottled it and put it on the shelf. This is a question. Or have you, personally? I, uh, I hope I haven't. Oh. Yeah, I hope I haven't. You know, writing, writing through my experience of it isn't meant to be totalizing. I'm not writing through it to be done with it. Uh, in some ways, I'm, I'm writing through it, you know, to kind of remain in touch with that experience. Well, thank you. We're going to take a short break. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. You're tuned in to The Living Writer Show. My guest today is poet Ray McDaniel, and we're talking about his forthcoming m- book of poems, Saltwater Empire, as well as his first book of poems, Murder of Violet. We'll be right back. back. You're tuned into The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Raymond McDaniel, poet, critic, teacher, shaman drum reading series host extraordinaire. And we're talking about his poetry and um, life in the South and life outside the South and that sort of thing, aesthetics. You name it. We'll cover the gamut today. I'm, I'm wondering, in thinking about this manuscript and in thinking about Murder of Violet, which um, has this moral core to it, this moral exp- exploration. That's the, that's the landscape there. I'm wondering about things like redemption and um, forgiveness and letting go and, and how um, 
if you'll allow me this, the phoenix rises from the ashes. <laughs> Where we go there, and, and I'm wondering if you'll read a couple of poems for us, and then let's swirl around those um, very broad topics. I would, I would, you know, send my students back to the desk if they threw that kind of <laughs> thing at me. <laughs> um, but will you read Swamp Thing for us, and then now you? Sure. Swamp Thing. Our Lord says, but also is said to have fed the Boudreaux and the Louisiana Irish and the poachers and whores with the meat of lowly beasts. Still, that state's motto is get out, yet the good God of the bog persists. In the gas station, he parts his holy hair, and the man next to him first says faggot and then Jesus head. They say Jesus came from the mountains to the Apalachicola and took the whole swamp in his mouth rattled the oysters under his tongue, and cracked the shells between his teeth, spat out bayou brine and a fine sheet of grit, a million glass beads. His hair floats filthy in the water, the sink's bark rusted out into the porcelain. Our lord severed his own hair like a hurricane gone through cypress roots. His curls twisted to yams, fistfuls fabric in the silver hives of river rats. It grew on the floor and under the sink in a gas station bathroom south of Get Out of Louisiana. Fertile, the urine, the soap, the mud, flesh of his flesh. Thanks. And if you'll just launch into uh, now you and then we'll go back to forgiveness and redemption. (laughs) (laughs) Now you. Waiting on smoke in a room to curl. No float to nothing. Nets undreamed at their corners. Perfume. Like peeling apart a deck of cards. Signature. Yours. Dropped into a room like bait. We will set doors on the sea to make shade. House for the schools. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's cheating. Coming back. If you will, love, forfeit me now. Thank you. So throughout both of your books um, that I've read, this new manuscript and the, and the first one that's already out, um, and it's been out since last fall, is it? Did yeah. Murder came out last fall. Um, you have all kinds of really complex intellectual threads and um, just loads of complexity generally. I can name multiple planes upon which <laughs> we might talk about complex things. But That's all you. I'm a simpleton. You're a simpleton. Well, that's, that's my question. Um, not that you're a simpleton, but rather um, there's a lot of very simple, basic, important um, emotions and emotional truths and um, sentiments in uh, in a lot of the work as well. And they swirl around this nexus I've I've created of redemption, letting go, and forgiveness. And so I wonder if you'll sort of articulate some of that simple access to complex concepts and how you use redemption and forgiveness and, and that sort of, those sorts of concepts to get at them. I mean, like the last line of, um, is it now you or Swamp Thing? Which one is... Uh, the last line well the last line will love if you will love forfeit me now is the last line of now you and um, in Swamp Thing the last is flesh of his flesh which is recognizably biblical sure um, and and gives us some touchstones that get us to something that 
we don't necessarily have to think about. We can feel and experience um, in a way that if we want to go in and think about all kinds of stuff, it's there. But we talk a little bit about that just sort of direct access that um, I'm guessing you work for and you certainly achieve in your poems in addition to the complexity. The complexity is more, uh, if there is complexity, that's the part that's accidental. The stuff that seems more straightforward is uh, is the stuff to which I pay the most attention, just because that's the kind of stuff that obsesses me. Uh, I'm really fixed by the idea of daily moral work, uh, especially uh, the relationship of forgiveness relative to redemption. Uh, forgiveness, uh, especially in kind of religious conversation, seems to me to be such a simplistic idea uh, because it's the kind of thing that you can know. If you have sinned or erred and need to be forgiven, you can beg for forgiveness. You can petition for it. And if you get it, you'll know. Uh, Those you violated will either forgive you or not. They'll tell you, yes, I forgive. No, I can't. Redemption, on the other hand, how would you ever know? Right? Uh, the, the difference between those ideas, that redemption is something you can crave as deeply as you, uh, as you desire forgiveness, but redemption will never satisfy you in that way because you're not going to be able to tell. Uh, and the fact that that inevitably, or for me, that inevitably leads to just daily labor, very simple, basic things, uh, how you spend your days, the work you choose to do, the material resources you have with which to do it. If you are capable of achieving even a proximity of redemption, you'll have to do it like that. And you'll have to do it knowing that you'll never be aware whether you succeeded or failed. And why care? Is this something that you observe people doing, or is this something that you personally strive for? If if um, we're in a sort of have it my way, have it now at the drive through window, and I want French fries without salt kind of moment in our culture here in the U.S., our, our, this cultural moment has something to do with immediacy. Um, forgiveness is, as you said, is something that you can measure or, or understand right. you've, you've received. Um, redemption is something you can't. Um, do you do do you see people caring or is it important to you that people care about redemption? Uh, it's, it's important in the sense that I feel like redemption is a vital idea because it reminds people that their basic choices have not just material but moral consequences. Right? Um, uh, forgiveness is hastier in that sense. The, uh, the effect of the violation usually tends to be immediate. Uh, and you're made aware of it because someone is probably telling you that you have done wrong. Uh, you, I mean, you often have to be prompted to seek forgiveness, whether you choose to respond to that prompt or not. Uh, redemption is trickier in that way. Uh, like, for instance, with, uh, with the whole idea of, uh, of any kind of Christ figure, that you have to redeem the actions of people who are unaware that they have done wrong. 
Do you think that displaces responsibility? Like, does that, for example, we were speaking earlier about the ways in which um, people outside the South gloss the South. It is this. It's hillbillies. It's Dixie. It's whatever it is. It's um, and. Do you think that 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 this capacity for redemption to happen without agency, without without someone acting um, overtly, intentionally, um, sort of undermines the kinds of things you're trying to do by calling attention to authentic experience versus um, the cartoon images and the, the glosses? I think I think that's why people are more comfortable focusing on questions of forgiveness because it uh, because it compromises that question of responsibility. Uh, and it, you know, I also have to be fair and say that this is not you know this is not one long pity party for the South sense of its own suffering. I mean, it's an exceptionally vain uh, vain place. It has a history of uh, embittered self congratulation, uh, often at at really awful cost, especially to its own citizens. Uh, but at the same time, you know what what I'm hoping is that to emphasize on the the dull, flat, mechanical work of redemption, people will ideally be reminded uh, of their need to seek things for which there is no quick clarification, no sure remedy. Um, it's a it's a way of both admitting the possibility and to a certain degree the inevitability of failure. Uh, things worth doing despite the possibility of uh, gratification, not because of it. Which is again, we're back to, to something that's quite complex. Um, how do you think folks access that and grasp it? Um, in a way that's meaningful when, when reading your poems or, I mean, uh, that, that's a, that's kind of an unfair question. How are people receiving your book? Um, but, uh, how, how do you take something that's like that and, um, work that into your creative process? Or, or is that something that you think about after you read something you've written and said, Oh, this is kind of what I was after here. It has to be pointed out to me. There's, mm-hmm. you know, there's not much of an element of deliberation. I don't design things to have that kind of moral effect. But uh, for these poems in particular, I guess I'm just hoping that uh, all they'll really do is remind people of those things that they've chosen to leave out. Well, that's perhaps a good place to stop because we're running out of time. Unfortunately, I'd love to keep talking. You have uh, more books you're working on. There's one on comic comic books, is it? Yes. And that's, yeah, I'm, that's the next, uh, I'm, next I'm dork enough to admit that. Yeah. yeah, comic books. So we have Murder of Violet out in bookstores now. Um, Saltwater Empire coming out in 2007. Yep. Both from Coffeehouse Press. And tonight you'll be leading the Alice Notley, Ken Michalowski, Ted Berrigan extravaganza at Shaman Drum on State Street at 7. Is that right? Correct. Well, you'll be reading at Crazy Wisdom at 7 o'clock yourself. Well, yes, that's true. Thank you, Ray. <laughs> well, you weren't going to say it, so no, I No, I wasn't. To. That's embarrassing. Um, yes, I would like to thank you so much for, for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for his wonderful work. Next week, we'll be talking with Andrew Del Banco, social critic and professor of humanities and American studies at Columbia University. We'll discuss his new book, Melville, His Life and Work. 
You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today has been poet Ray McDaniel. Please join us next week and please stay tuned for the sports report. It's next. Oh,